Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. I'd like to introduce you to Lynn Edelman. She is Vice President of Market Research at Trifecta Research. Lynn is a seasoned market research and analytics professional with a passion for serving clients' critical business needs through data-backed insights for over 30 years. Her focus has been leveraging insights for improved decision-making and strategic outcomes. Welcome, Lynn. How are you this morning? Good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to have you. As someone who's been in the market research industry over 30 years, and you have a degree in marketing as well. I'm curious, what are some of the aha moments that have brought you to where you are now? Aha moments. All along my career, you have so many projects that sort of blend together, but every now and then you get one that you really, really recall, and it really teaches you something, and it makes you a better researcher. And I think those are the moments that really create a true Market Insights Pro. For example, Early in my career, I was asked to put together an analysis, first time that our company would have done something like this. I dug in and I pulled out what I thought was a really innovative analytic technique, and I wrote this really great report, and it went all the way up to the president's desk, and it got on his desk, and there's a typo in it. He stopped reading. He never reacted to the report. So it was such a lesson learned. The insights are only as good as the way you communicate them. And uh, it was a harsh lesson, but one I learned and took to heart, especially given I worked in, uh, at the time, a media company where typos were a big deal. So (laughs) I think those are the kind of aha moments that really teach you how to really hone your craft. I'm curious, what even before that, what led you to the industry of market research? And what in particular attracted you to it? I was studying marketing in undergrad, and I took this class called Consumer Behavior. I was totally sucked in. I loved the whole psychology behind what motivates people to make decisions from a consumer behavior standpoint. There was no such thing as a market research degree where I went to school. So I coupled it with a psych focus and uh, basically created my own market research degree, if you will. I loved the idea of being able to help people make better decisions by providing them with information. So that was what really drove me. You know, it's interesting. That's the same thing. My passion is a class in consumer behavior and and advertising and things. And so I'm curious, you know, you've been doing this for a while and I have this sense that, you know, once you get to the underlying triggers and motivators of what consumers are doing, I kind of feel like you have a tap into the jet stream of society. Do you feel the same way? Oh, I love when you finally get to that kernel of what is driving them to do this. I was working for an ad agency for a few years that focused on senior consumers And there was this myth that seniors didn't like technology. And we did dug in and we did some research and we found that senior adults love, love, love their technology as long as it's supporting something that they love in their life. For example, if somebody loves their iPhone with apps on it about financial stock tracking, if that's something they're really excited about. People love their laptop that they can access Facebook not because of Facebook, but because they can connect with their grandchildren. And so they love the technology as long as it supports what it is that they love in their life. And I think those are the kind of things that get you excited about what it is that you do. You know, we talk about insights and I'm curious, it seems a lot of people have different meanings for the word insights. 
How do you define insights? Yeah, that's been a point of debate for years. I think sometimes market researchers or market insights pros, we kind of get a little caught up sometimes in the semantics. But I believe that a true insight is something, it's a new knowledge that helps us to better connect with our customers or our stakeholders and helps us to be able to serve them better and create more value for them. So I think it's really that new knowledge that helps us to serve them better. And so you also use the term try insights for your business. Tell me a little bit about how is try insights different from insights? Well, Trifecta, the company, one of the reasons that drew me to them is because they did have this focus on hindsight, insights, and foresight. And really, they leverage multiple tools and multiple audiences, if you will, to help our clients make decisions. We have a really talented group of people who do desk research or secondary research. And we call that hindsight because it's typically research that's already been collected or data that's already been produced. And we really leverage that information to figure out what has been happening so that we can then collect additional information and create a trend. You know, we need to see the trends. We have our our hindsight, which is our point of reference. We gather information from our stakeholders or our customers or their customers through market insights to get that current picture. And then we have a team of really talented people who focus a lot on the foresight. They're the people who are talking to subject matter experts. Futurists are out there trying to figure out what is five, 10 years down the road in terms of technology, in terms of raw materials, in terms of supply chain. So they're really helping customers to be thinking way far out. I think what you said is very important. I often say that an insight is a combination of knowing current trends, what's happening, the underlying triggers, but also where things are kind of headed and putting it all together to know what are the key motivators and things that are driving people to make decisions. So I think that's very important. It's very interesting that you look at all three, hindsights, insights, and foresights. In in the time you've been doing research, how has research changed and evolved? Well, it changed quite a lot. I would say from a tool standpoint, you know, when I first started, there was a lot of mall intercept. There was actually even door-to-door interviewing. There was a lot of telephone polling, if you will, traditional focus groups. And, you know, it's evolved with digital technology, right? You know, there's so much online. We now have data where we uh, do text analysis on the unstructured data. They do analysis of images now using an artificial intelligence. The tools have just changed tremendously. What hasn't changed, I believe, is the fundamentals of what is the underlying information objective that you absolutely have to get to. And to me, that's the really gratifying part because what it is, that's where you're really meeting your client needs because you're giving them information that they need in order to make the decisions that they have to make for their jobs to be successful. So what are some of the new tools you're using now or the methodologies that you use to pursue these insights? We're using a lot of online surveying. We do a lot of virtual qualitative, especially with COVID, like everybody, we ended up having to convert a lot to virtual has worked out just fantastic. We're trying to leverage a lot of the the new digital tools that have been developed over the last few years. Of course, with COVID, we moved a lot of our qualitative to virtual. So we're definitely leveraging those kinds of tools to uh, dig into our customers' motivations virtually, even virtual ethnography. We're using that. We're also using quantitative aspects, so that qual-quant mix, 
so that you don't have to choose between the two. We're also using tools where it integrates artificial intelligence into the quantitative so that you can really learn qualitative insights on the fly and you can actually convert those to quantitative and measure them. So I think those are some of the more exciting things that we're using. So I'm curious, uh, as you've transitioned to more of an online approach, you know, a lot of people may be still hesitant or concerned about what can you share with us that you found that the online offers you in terms of advantages and disadvantages? Sure. In terms of online or digital or virtual qualitative, that completely opens us up to expanding our pool. We don't have to be there with them physically. So we can interview people from all over, even not just in the U.S. So that really expands our reach, if you will, on our respondents. And really, there's very few disadvantages, honestly, because you still are face-to-face with them and we're able to share screens so we can share stimuli. So I don't really see a whole lot of disadvantages there. In terms of the quantitative, we are seeing that with the online panels struggling to keep up with demand for the last couple of years. The online panels have just been so leveraged that it's really, they're struggling to keep up with the demand. So in certain niche audiences, we've actually converted that to telephone interviewing. So it feels like we're going back in time, but it's a really great way to make sure that we're getting the right pool of people on this very niche audiences. How about in terms of building communities, are you encouraging clients to build communities that they can go to and talk to on a regular basis to tap into their thoughts, feelings, and pain points? Right. Where we have clients where that's appropriate, we absolutely do think that they should have those ready and to tap into for on-demand research. Absolutely. Oftentimes, some of our clients, though, have hard-to-reach audiences. And when they have really specific information needs, we can't keep going back to the same people. We need to custom recruit every time that we work with them. So it's a mix. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about something you mentioned, that there's more of a mix of qualitative and quantitative. Talk to me a little bit about that and how are you doing that? There's actually tools that you can use that, like I said, integrate artificial intelligence right into a quantitative survey. And so software is already developed. We just need to leverage it. That's the one thing that I'm big on is always watching for new platforms, new technologies, new ways of doing things so that we're not keeping doing things the same way over and over. So can you give me an example of how you use this tool and how it made a difference? Sure. So we had a client who had uh, gave us their information objectives and and probably 90% of those information objectives were quantitative. You know, they were measure this, how much of this, what's the incidence of this, but they had a small subset of questions that were very much how and why. And so we pulled this tool in, you can ask questions in an open-ended way. And then the artificial intelligence enables us to probe on those responses and then group them on the fly and then be able to measure them throughout the course of the study. So I think it's a really wonderful tool. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of times people are struggling to have the right balance between quantitative and qualitative for a project. I'm curious, have you found a way to find that balance? Actually, I've never struggled with that because I think that the perfect balance is what meets their information objectives, whether if their information objectives are all about measurement and trend tracking, then it should stay quant. If what you really need to know is what are the motivations? Why are they doing things? How do they feel when they're using it? Then it's qual. And I don't have a bias towards one or the other. You know, I'm I'm method agnostic, I'd like to think. Mm -hmm. 
when it comes to surveys, what do you think are the key elements that lead to a really effective survey? There's so many things. Questionnaire writing looks simple on the surface, and it really, it takes a while to really hone that craft and be very good at it. But there's a couple of things I think would encourage people to do is A, if you want to write quantitative surveys, get some good training, you know, and don't just do it via a listicle on a Google search, you know, go get some good training on how to do it. But the most critical factor, I believe, is the right screening questions and make sure they're written in a way that you're going to get the exact right people you need to be answering those questions. You want to weed out the people who don't apply. You want to weed out people who are just taking the survey for fun. And you really want to make sure that the screening questions get you to the exact right people. And what are some common mistakes people make that they can avoid? One of the things that I learned early in my career was to make sure that I did what we called at the time expected output while I'm writing the questionnaire. Because once you're already data collecting and you're already in field, then you sit down and you go, here's how I'm going to analyze this question and how I'm going to group things. And you learn, oh, I should have asked it a different way. You know, For example, let's say you want to go in and do some basic regression and you ask the questions the wrong way. You didn't use the right scale data. You can't go back and fix it at that point. So I I always recommend to my team, make sure you know how you're analyzing each and every question before you hit a field. Another thing is, you know, just ask people to look at your questionnaire. Always get a couple sets of eyes on it before you go to data collection and make sure that there's somebody who understands the topic that you're studying, you know, get it in front of some respondents if it's B2B and you don't work in that field. But one of my favorite examples of a really bad question on a questionnaire, I saw it on a a website and it was a poll question, not an actual survey, but it said, are you for or against gun control? And the answer choices were yes and no. And I just still laugh about that. It's like, how can somebody even answer that? But the sad part is people are going to click on those radio buttons and they're going to get data and they're going to think that they learned something. So I I think that's a good example of just making sure you know what you're doing. Don't trust questionnaires with the hands of a novice. When it comes to qualitative, what are the key elements to having effective qualitative research? I think probably the first thing I would recommend is make sure that you have good stakeholder involvement. The people who you're collecting the qualitative insights for, you need to involve them in making sure that you understand their goals, that they have exposure to your discussion guide, they have exposure to the screeners. Even if they're not research experts, this is really good feedback for you before you actually go out and conduct the project. The other thing is make sure (laughs) that you leave your bias behind. You know, confirmation bias is a huge issue in qualitative. You've got to go in and be ready to listen and be ready to be wrong and just keep an open mind and then probe, probe, probe. Don't go in thinking that you know the topic and that people are just going to confirm what you already know. I would think it's also very important in qual to have the right people. Oh, absolutely. Similar to the quant, your screener has to be completely buttoned up. The cool part about qual, though, that I love is that we've always been able to pivot, make adjustments. You go out and you do your first group or your first few interviews and things need tweaking or adjusting. You work with your stakeholders, make sure you get it adjusted. And then you go on to the next group or the next respondent. And so basically, I always say that qualitative was agile before agile was a thing. That whole iterative process with your stakeholders has always been in place there. And what are some common pitfalls people can avoid when they're doing qualitative? 
probably not doing the right screener, not pivoting, not making those adjustments when you need to. And then also, I think sometimes people want to do qualitative, they want to do focus groups, but they also want to measure and they don't understand that the two don't necessarily dovetail. So I think it's not a pitfall so much as we always have to educate our clients that qualitative is in essence not an exercise in measurement. They would need to go to that next step after that if they really want to find out things like how many people do this, what percentage Mm -hmm. do this. You mentioned a minute ago, uh, agile research. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that's changing the world of research and you know how it's impacted you and your clients. Sure. I think agile is such a cool new concept. It's a great concept to be applied to market research or market insights, but it is truly a mindset. It's not a process. And I think that's the one thing people need to understand. It's not a cookie cutter approach to insights. What it really does add value to is it keeps the stakeholders involved. We make sure that they are getting their feedback. We make sure that that iteration happens and the adjustments happen. All really good things. The one thing that has not been so great is when people misunderstand what Agile is and they think it's cheaper, faster. Those things can happen, but they're byproducts. They're byproducts of reducing the scope to something that can be accomplished in a time band and keeping the stakeholders involved and adjusting along the way. So those are the benefits. They're not the end goal. So can you give me an example of how you've accomplished the mind shift for other researchers that maybe work for you as well as for clients when it comes to Agile? Well, my previous job was an Agile product development environment. So I had that experience and I had that mindset. So when I came to Trifecta, I did my best to educate the team exactly what it is and what it isn't. And so when we do have clients who work in an agile environment, we do try to understand what their time band is. And then whether they're working on a two-week sprint or a two-two-week sprint, we understand that sort of requirement. And then we do continue to work with them on that iterative basis. You know, do they want to come in and do a quant survey? We field for a little while. We take a look at the results. Do we want to make some adjustments? So we work with them back and forth that way. But not all our clients work in an agile environment. So we have to be nimble enough to work with our clients the way that they need us to. I think what you're saying, if I hear it correctly, is in agile, I mean, you will have some savings, obviously, because you're doing maybe a smaller scope, but you're also doing it faster. But the key is, I think what you're saying is you want to do it on a regular basis and keep maintaining that. Is that what I'm hearing? Our clients do. Absolutely. But oftentimes they only come to us for a portion of their agile project. So, you know, they have their uh, knowledge gap that they're trying to fill. And so they come to us and they usually tell us this is the time band that you get in order to help us fill this knowledge gap. So we understand at the very beginning what that is. But oftentimes their iteration is happening on the client side, not necessarily involving us the whole project. So what are some of the do's and don'ts when it comes to agile research? Fundamentals. First and foremost, keep your stakeholder involved, whether that's one person who's going to represent all stakeholders or you know somebody who's going to represent the customer. Keep them involved. They have to be involved. And then that iteration, that adjustment, be looking at the insights. Did we get what we needed? Do we need to make some adjustments? You know, Keep going back and forth. To me, that's the number one thing. And then also, as you mentioned, you, know, you got to understand what the scope is and it can't creep during the course of the sprint. It has to stay, this is what we need to find out. Don't want to belabor it, but don't think that the purpose of Agile is to make it cheaper or to get 
the same type of research we used to do that took six weeks into two because that defeats the purpose. And how has Agile impacted uncovering insights? Has it made it easier, better, harder? Probably all of the above. It makes it better when you define your scope in a way that can be done in a time band because it really does help to focus. Here's exactly what we need to know. And you don't get that whole kitchen sink questionnaire that oftentimes we used to get. What makes it harder, though, is that exact same thing. It forces people to prioritize. What is your uh, knowledge gap that you need to fill right now? And the scope cannot creep. And that's why it needs to be done on a more sustained basis as opposed to just one off. Exactly right. Good point. So what do you see on the horizon in terms of things that are changing either in the quantitative realm or the qualitative realm when it comes to you know uncovering insights? I think the thing that is super exciting on the qualitative side is the ability to leverage artificial intelligence in a very practical way. The fact that we can get transcripts that are AI-driven and really immediately begin to analyze and timestamp and pull quotes and develop themes so much more quickly than it used to be, you know, with having to have somebody actually type up transcriptions and weed through hundreds of pages of verbatim comments. That to me is so exciting. The introduction of being able to leverage image recognition in qualitative is going to make such an impact on how we do ethnography. You know, if, if you do shop along and you have video and the AI can recognize what objects you're using and create insights that way. I'm super excited about that. The other things I'm excited about are actually a little bit even outside of my current focus of primary market research is things like analyzing text analysis through maybe social media or product reviews or blog posts. You know, what? how can we leverage all this unstructured data out there that's being talked about, you know, our client's brand or our client's competitors? There's so much information that we can tap into that could complement what it is that we do from a primary research point of view. Do you have an example of some of these things you've already done or plan to do? What I have done in the past is taken product reviews and actually used text analysis to find out what are the key themes that are bubbling up that aren't getting you know, the headlines. Because it's easy just to look at, you know, Google reviews or, you know, Amazon reviews and go, yeah, I can see what people like about my product and I can see what they don't, right? But it's really getting into the comments themselves that you get that sort of rich information. And so uh, that's one thing I have done in the past is to tap into all that unstructured data out there to find out what it is we were doing well and what were some areas that our brand was associated with that we did not want, you know, that we needed to change. Mm-hmm. What area of market research would you love to delve into more and why? I think it's this whole connection of different data sources. Again, I mentioned that's why I came to Trifecta because we don't just rely on one source of data. And I love the idea of pulling together data from our client's data sets with the data that we're collecting through you know, surveys or through qualitative efforts and really marrying them together to give a much more holistic picture of what their customers think of them, what motivates them, and how can they do better. Is there anyone in the world of market research you'd love to have lunch with, and why them? I have this fantasy of when I get to the end of my career, which is hopefully quite a ways off yet, but I have gotten the privilege of working with some amazing market researchers 
and you won't know their name because they're not out there in all the associations. You know, uh, they're not out there on LinkedIn trying to make a name for themselves. They're sitting back doing really amazing work for their clients and doing it with such passion and integrity that, you know, it's just, that's so impressive to me. So I have this fantasy that when I get to the end of my career, I'm going to get all my former research people, I just, my best friends in research and do a big group lunch. It'd be Kristen Letourneau, who's at Informa Engage. It'd be Sandy Ashenbrenner, who is now at an ad agency. Garrett McGuire, who has moved outside of research into marketing. They're just people that I so admire and who have really made this career fun for me. Well, that sounds nice. I think uh, it's still a ways to go. I think you have a lot more to contribute to the industry and to your clients. So uh, I hope so. I think that lunch is a little bit down the line. So I'm sure I've left out, you know, the people I work with currently. I'd love to have lunch <laughs> with them too, but we're a virtual company, so uh, we only get to have lunch a few times a year. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for joining me today, Lynn. It was really a pleasure talking to you, and I enjoyed the conversation. And thank, uh, you. thank you for all the insights and the information you were able to provide. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>